Hey, and welcome to the Humanity Church Podcast. So excited that you're here. We hope that you enjoy this week's talk and it really connects to your life in a meaningful way. If you're live in the Pomona area, we would love to have you at one of our gatherings at 10 a.m. or at one of our humanity groups that meet all throughout the week all over the city. If you want more information about our community, you can go to www.humanitychurch.com or download our app on your phone on Apple or Android. If you like what you're hearing here and want to continue to support the ongoing work at Humanity, you can text the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977 and give back financially in just about 10 seconds. Hey, and here's this week's talk that was given live at our Sunday gathering at Humanity Church. Well, we are at the close to the very end of this series that we have called Regrets of the Dead and taking a look at the five regrets that people have when they're on their deathbed. And we've gone through four of them now, which were, I wish I would have lived an authentic life. I wish I wouldn't have worked so much. I wish that I would have shared my heart. I wish that I would have given more time to community, invested in the people that I say mattered most. And It's interesting because every week people have been coming up to me and saying, man, this series has been so good. I can't miss it. It's been speaking to me in such a powerful way. And I don't think it's just because I'm just a ridiculously amazing communicator. Uh, But I do think that it's because this conversation speaks to the core of what it means to be human. It would make sense that if these are the top five regrets that people experience at the end of their days, that they would speak to us while we're living around what's most important and how we are to invest our lives and where we are supposed to give our time to and how we're supposed to engage with one another. See, because the thing is, is that these regrets actually violate what it means to be human at a very real level. They violate what it means to fully be alive. And it gives us this powerful platform to reverse engineer our lives, taking a look at what is the end game. If this is what I don't want, then what do I want? And how do I start living now to have that happen here and now? And so it shouldn't be a surprise that Jesus has so much to say about this because it speaks to the core of who we are as human beings. And the first one, this regret of not living an authentic life. See, we all are going to be informed by some voice that is going to tell us who we are and what we're supposed to give ourselves to and what authentic actually looks like. We were not actually designed to live quote unquote, our truth, contrary to popular belief. We just call that self-indulgence. We were actually designed as human beings to discover what is true and then engage the courage to live that out. And see, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he came to inform us of that would elevate our lives above every other life. And then he created the pathway to connect to that voice, the voice of God, the one who actually authored and defined what it means to be authentically human, that by connecting to him, we might connect to the God who informs us of what it means to be human and then fully live that out. The second regrets of, I wish I wouldn't have worked so hard. See, we were never actually designed to prove our worth. That violates what it means to be human. It violates the design. Because the powerful thing about connecting to Jesus is that he informs us of what our value is, period. That it was established before you were born and there's nothing you can do to add to it, to prove it, to enhance it, or to take it away, good news. And so when we spend our time, our life, our energy attempting to prove how valuable we are and how worthy we are and how, how much good we're going to bring to the world, we will just find ourselves exhausted because it violates what it means to be human 
already from the very beginning. That child of God should be the primary identity that we operate from. And from that space, we have the highest value that's available to us. And then our work becomes an expression of that value. It becomes a gift rather than a proving ground. And then, of course, this third regret that I wish I would have shared my heart. I wish I would have shared my life. And see, we were not actually designed to withhold what was happening for us. When we withhold our feelings, when we withhold our feedback, when we withhold our correction with other people around us, it actually violates what it means to be human. It goes against the design for us because we were actually designed to be in community and not just be in community. We were designed to be a sharpening agent for one another that we aren't able to clearly see what's going on for us. And so we need other people to speak into those places to sharpen us. And when we don't have that, it violates what it means to fully be human. And then we grow resentful and we grow dull in our walk and our lives. And we wonder where is all the passion and the power that we were designed for. And the beautiful thing is is that Jesus invites us into a connection with him. And in the process of that, he invites us into connection with others. And not just into a, hey, let's show up and have a nice conversation, but into a powerful, honest, authentic, transparent, healing community. That when we engage that, everything around us transforms. And then last week, we talked about this fourth core value of what it looks like to invest in community because we were actually designed to be connected to one another. We were made to be knit together, to be one, to be unified, to live as a body, supporting one another. And when we choose other priorities, once again, it violates what it means to fully be human. So it would make sense that we could have a lifetime filled with amazing achievements in our career and in our finances and and in the fame and in the recognition that we've accomplished. At the end of the day, still take a look at our lives and say, I regret it because I wasn't connected to the people that I love. I didn't give enough time to the people that I say mattered most to me in the middle of this. And so we miss out on people. So all of these regrets give us the sneak peek into what we were designed for, what human beings were actually made for, and how we are to live. And actually, of all the regrets, this week's, I think, is the most profound to me. Of all of them, this one actually brings the most life, and it brings the most wonderment, and it brings the most curiosity around what it means to be human. And it's this, that I wish I would have allowed myself to be more joyful. It's interesting that I wouldn't have expected this one to show up on the top five uh, of regrets. I mean, I thought for sure someone on there would be like, I I wish that I would have made a deeper impact or I wish that I would have, you know, had my name in lights or something like that. But it's interesting that in the top five regrets that people had on their deathbed, among those, the majority of people actually said, I wish I would have allowed myself to be more joyful. And when... I think about this regret, it's actually interesting how it's worded and how most people talked about it because when we talk about joy, we oftentimes do not relate to it as something that we allow ourselves to be or allow ourselves to engage in or allow ourselves to have. We talk about joy as if it's like something out there that we must find, this this elusive 
experience called joy that, that we must work towards or create the right circumstances for, that if I go on the right vacation, if I make the right amount of money, if I have all my relationships fixed, then I will finally find myself in this elusive place called joy. And it's oftentimes connected to the circumstances that we find ourselves in in life. So if we find ourselves in beautiful, good circumstances, we can be joyful. If we find ourselves in destructive, bad circumstances, well, the joy eludes us in the middle of that. And joy often feels like this ebb and flow that comes with the circumstances of life. And that's how we talk about it. We don't oftentimes say, you know what, I haven't allowed myself to be joyful. It's just like, yeah, I'm not really feeling joyful right now. I mean, if you think about our society right now, and if you were to think of like the top 10 characteristics that would define our culture, our society, what you read on the news these days, how many of you in the top 10 list of characteristics would say our society is defined as joyful? Anyone? Just checking, right? <laughs> I actually don't think that it would be in the top 20 maybe of characteristics that we would define our society. And here's the thing, it would make sense that if as a culture we have connected joy to experiences and then we go on a hunt for joy attempting to find it in every experience possible, whether that being money or sex or work or pleasure or substance, and then at the end of the day, pursuing all of these experiences, realizing that we are not joyful, it would make sense that we are the most depressed generation in 150 years. Because we have not connected the dots between what actually creates joy in the world around us. In Philippians, Paul writes to us in this, in Philippians chapter four, starting in verse four, he says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, what's so interesting in this passage here is that Paul, when he's writing this, he, he actually relates to rejoicing as a command. He actually says, rejoice, period. Right? And, and then he says, rejoice in the Lord always. So it is actually a command that we are to do all the time. It, it doesn't say, look, if you're feeling it and things are going well, rejoice. It doesn't say even if like, hey, the moment comes and all of a sudden things align, then you are to rejoice. It doesn't say like if you caught a vibe and everything's like moving, then you should rejoice in the middle of all this. It actually just says rejoice. And then he does this like, just in case you missed it moment. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he said, and I'm gonna say it again because you probably missed it the first time or you probably dismissed it the first time or you probably thought, oh yeah, that's really cute the first time. I'm gonna say it again. You are to rejoice. It is an always command that we are called to live in. You are meant to be defined as a human being by joy. And the beautiful thing about this is that this is the case. If Paul just commands us to rejoice, then joy is always a choice that we can make or not make in any circumstance that we find ourselves in. I love in, in Proverbs, the wisdom around joy, it says this in 1722, it says, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bone. See, it actually talks about it as something that we decide to take to alleviate heartbreak 
right? Like, like some type of a, a medicine. It's not some random thing that I feel at times. It's like, hey, got crushed spirit? Try joy. Symptoms include gratitude and hopefulness, right? In the middle of all this. And, and so it, he, he refers to joy again as something that you are to administer to yourself like it's a medicine that you take when you find yourself heart sick or in heart crush or in heartbreak in the middle of all of this. And here's the beautiful thing is there is such freedom in that. Knowing that joy is a choice. And here's the other thing, because I, I, I know in this conversation there's going to be so many people that are like, yeah, I don't know, that sounds weird. I don't know about that. But there's always a but in this conversation. When people like big butts, right? And because it's just like there's like a caveat of but you don't know, or but what about this, or but maybe we should. And there's all kinds of things that get in the way because this is, very, this is a very countercultural conversation. This goes against everything that comes your way on a regular basis. Because here's what Paul continues with this. He says, do not be anxious. Another command, right? He says, do not be anxious, but choose to pray, be thankful, and ask God what you need. See, when I read that, I'm like, what do you mean? You can, you can just do that, right? The scriptures seem to think so. He just says, look, you're anxious, don't be anxious. Pray and ask God for exactly what you need and find yourself in a whole new space and having a whole new experience here. See, to be clear, this does not say that anxiety doesn't exist. There's a difference between the two of them. There's a difference between sticking your head in the sand and saying, well, anxiety doesn't exist and I'm not gonna even take a look at it. And there's a difference between that and saying, do not be anxious. See, because one is an experience that you are having, the other is an identity that you take on. Because it is possible to experience anxiety and not be anxious. It is, it is absolutely possible to say, yeah, I am experiencing this emotion, this feeling called anxiety right now, and I choose not to be that right now. Which is why he says, do not be anxious because he's saying, you are not to take this on as your identity statement. Your identity statement that you are to take on is joy because that is what it means to be human. There, there are clear alternatives that are available that will elevate your life to the next level. And just notice inside of yourself if there's something that's like, yeah, but, right? In this conversation, I, I worked with artists for so many years and I still get to work with artists on a regular basis and it's so interesting. When I first started working with artists in Los Angeles, we would have these kind of creative sessions where we would develop scripts or develop dance pieces or develop writing or develop all kinds of different methods of, of creativity. And, and there was always this, this, this bent towards darkness and hopelessness within the art. The art. And this is where you get the phrase like dark artists, right? Because it would always be like, we're gonna tell this story of this couple falling in love and they're gonna be like childhood sweethearts and then they're gonna fall in love and they're gonna have a family and then he's gonna cheat on her and it's gonna all fall apart and the kids are gonna become drug addicts. And I'm like, whoa, why, why, why do we have to go there, right? <laughs> or it'd always be this, this beautiful story of hope and redemption and the ending would always have like, and then they died in a horrible car accident. I'm like, why, why? Why does it have to, right? And inevitably, the conversation always went back to, well, we don't want this to be like fake. We don't want this to be like, you know, like superficial. We don't want this to be shallow. And what I realize is that we as human beings have set ourselves up to believe that hopelessness and darkness and despair are real. And that joy and fulfillment and passion are things that are less real that they're almost the shallow emotions that we experience. The deep emotions are sorrow and despair and angst. And we don't actually give our permission, ourselves permission to believe 
that joy could be as equally as valid and powerful and real and, poten- and have so much potential as anything else in the middle of this. See, what if we as human beings oftentimes made despair and hopelessness more real than joy in our lives because we actually don't like the freedom that comes with joy. We actually just avoid the freedom that comes with choosing a life that is defined by joy. See, because if joy is a choice, then it is on me to actively choose to live a life of a perspective that is informed and formed by joy. See, it is my responsibility to take ownership of how I choose to relate to life and the experience that I'm having here and now. So if despair and joy are just something that happened to me and I have no power, then I don't have to actually participate in my own life. In fact, I have a great excuse all the time. Well, I can't be joyful because fill in the blank. I can't be joyful because of my finances. I can't be joyful because of my career. I can't be joyful because of this addiction. I can't be joyful because of my kids. I can't be joyful because of this thing that this person did. I can't be joyful because I don't know my purpose in life and I can't find myself there in the middle of all that. And see, we oftentimes want to get rid of the responsibility that comes with the freedom of living a life of joy. And so we blame it on all the external circumstances as to why we can't have that. And sometimes, let's be honest, it's just nice to get rid of that responsibility, the responsibility that comes with being free. I remember when I turned 18 and I wanted to get a tattoo so bad, my parents had said, you can do that when you turn 18, and I turned 18. So I marched myself down to Hollywood Boulevard and I was at the tattoo shop and I was like, all right, I'm gonna get my tattoo. It's a tiny little thing on my ankle. And, and I remember like right before I was about to do this, I realized I am making a choice that will be with me until I die. And the weight of that responsibility suddenly hit me. I was like, this will be something that will be in my casket with me upon my deathbed. And this suddenly became a very big decision for an 18 year old. So I called my dad and I said, dad, hey, I'm down here on Hollywood Boulevard. I'm about to get a tattoo. What do you think? And he said, you're 18, do what you want. And I said, I thought to myself, not the answer I was looking for, right? Can I just, Dad, can you just give me like a yes or a no? He's like, no, you're 18, do what you want. So I said what any person would do in that situation. Dad, can you hand the phone to mom, right? (laughs) So he hands the phone to mom and I say, mom, I'm, I'm thinking about getting a tattoo. Like I'm literally in the tattoo chair right now. What do you think? You're 18, do what you want. No, mom, I just need a yes or no. See, because had dad said no, and I went through with it, then there's a whole different dynamic. Had dad said yes, and I didn't like it, I could blame him, right? You told me, dad. You told me that this was okay. Mom, you said yes. But in that moment, the weight of my own freedom hit me like a Mack truck. And I thought, I wanna go back to being 17 where someone was telling me what to do and not to do. Because there is this weight that comes with owning your future, with owning the experience that you have in any given moment. See, at the end of the day, for many of us, it's just easier to be told what to do and what to feel, even by our circumstances, even if it means living a lesser life. At least we don't have to own it. See, it's interesting that the author of this study, when she was talking to people who were explaining this regret of not being defined by joy or not allowing themselves to live by joy, they, they oftentimes referred to this reality of what she called the comfort of familiarity. See, because how often do, do we grow comfortable with just what we already know in life? 
the circumstances, the situations, the relationships, even if it's dysfunctional. We just grow comfortable with the familiarity of everything around us because at least we know what will happen. How many of you notice that you have the same breakdowns over and over and over again? And they may be painful and they may be dysfunctional and they may be despairing, but at least you're familiar. At least you know exactly how this argument's gonna happen. It's gonna be same song, different verse. At least you know this outcome, how this outcome's gonna work. At least you know how this future is gonna turn out if you find yourself there because you know how everything works. And the other thing is you've trained everyone around you exactly how they're supposed to respond as well. And so someone comes and rescues you or you push someone away or you get what you want or they don't get what they want and you know exactly how everything's supposed to be. And it's not great, but it's manageable. And it's not really God-sized, but it's familiar and it's comfortable. See, because freedom is unfamiliar and living a life of joy can be uncomfortable at times. Living a life that is filled with rejoicing can be out of control at times, which is, I think, why Paul has to command us twice to be joyful. It's not just like, oh, hey, by the way, don't forget, be joyful. He's like, rejoice. I'm gonna say it again, rejoice in the middle of this. Now, here's the thing. This is so much bigger than like the power of positive thinking. This is not a conversation about, about saying the right mantras or giving yourself affirmations in the morning or, or just changing your mindset or doing like some type of like power stance or anything like that. That's not what this is about. How many of you have heard this phrase, even if you've never been in church or haven't even grown up in church, have heard this phrase, the joy of the Lord is my strength? Yeah? Yeah, it's like all over like Bible covers and cute posters with kittens and stuff like that. And it's everywhere, but we, t- we use it a lot, but we oftentimes don't know where it comes from in the scriptures. It comes from this book called Nehemiah where the people of Israel had realized that they had allowed the infrastructure of the city to fall into ruins and the walls around the city had not been built up in years. And so now they were vulnerable to all of the armies around them that wanted to defeat them. And so they started this process of rebuilding the wall. And in that process, they started rebuilding the community spiritually because they recognized that just as the wall had been neglected and fallen down, their own spiritual journeys had been neglected and fallen down and they had found themselves connected and out of the protection of God as well. And it's interesting that as they started building these walls, they also started engaging the word of God. And as they engaged the word of God, they realized how far they had strayed from what it meant to be human and what God had called them to and the life that he had called them to. And so there's this moment where all of the people are standing out in this courtyard and they start reading off the commands of God and the people start weeping because they recognize how far they've strayed from the standard of what it means to be people of God. And so we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter eight, starting in verse eight. It says, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, this day is holy for the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
See, because the Israelites, as they were hearing this narrative of how God had set up the standard for them to live and for their community to live in, they realized they had essentially royally screwed up their lives. And they're like overwhelmed by the reality of how far they'd strained in this moment. And if there was ever a moment to like grieve and wail and mourn, it was now because they recognized that. Ever been there where you look at your life and you're just like, well, crap. And you look at the choices you've made and you look at where you found yourself and you look at all of the, like the destination that you're at and you're just like, well, there's really nothing to do now but cry because of the choices that I've made in my life. And they find themselves here in this moment. And it's interesting that the priests and the governor tells them, do not mourn or grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, he tells them, look, 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 look hold on, I get it. But despite your circumstances and despite the choices that you have made along the way, God has still chosen to be good. And God has still chosen to be merciful. And God has still chosen to be generous. He has still chosen to provide. He has still chosen to be kind. He has still chosen to overwhelm you with his love. Because look, he decided, yeah, I'm not taking you out. He could have easily said, wow, well, this was a screw up. Let's just let the armies come in and defeat them. He could have easily said, well, I'm gonna let you live out your choices and you guys are gonna get pummeled because you did not take care of the wall and you didn't take care of yourself spiritually. But despite all that, he has chosen his people over and over and over again. And he says, look, despite our own actions, we are still the recipients of the love and the kindness and the goodness and the protection of God. So rejoice in this moment. This is not a moment to weep. This is not a moment to sit in your own wallowing. He essentially says, look, you can sit and wallow in your past, which will lead to more weakness, or you can rejoice in the Lord, and that will become your strength here in this moment. And so they say, you have a choice here, so choose joy. See, I actually love the empowerment of the scriptures over and over and over again that teach us that we can actually choose the emotional experience that we are having in life in any moment. That we can actually choose the experience that we're having in any given moment. See, because David would, when you look at the writing of David, he would often talk to his heart like, hey, this is not the emotion that we're supposed to be feeling right now. He would talk to himself. He would say, soul, why are you so downcast? You are not supposed to be downcast right now, right? Like the modern version of this is like, whoa, hey, we're not supposed to be anxious right now. Let's get up, right? We're not supposed to be so sad by the circumstances. Let's get up. We're not supposed to be so afraid right now. Let's get up. And you could tell yourself, like literally, hey, I have the option to sit here and wallow in the past and wallow in the circumstances and wallow in the present, or I can choose something else, not because of the power of positive thinking, but because there is a greater reality that God invites us into. There's a greater perspective that God elevates us into. See, part of living a life defined by joy is allowing yourself to have your perspective elevated by God what you see elevated by God. See, we as human beings, we are meaning machines. We are always making things mean things. And this, the last 18 months has been proof of that, right? I mean, back in 2019, things like vaccine and masks didn't mean much, right? <laughs> and now you say those and you're like, whoa, because everyone's just adding tons of meaning to them. 
We make things mean all the time, all kinds of things. And here's the thing. When we get stuck in our meaning, on our, how we are viewing a certain circumstance or a certain person or a certain situation or a certain thing that's happening in our life, when we get stuck in that space, it actually becomes very despairing and very hopeless because there's not a lot of possibilities in that. So we look at our bank account, we're like, oh, it, it's, it's low. That means we're never gonna have what we say we want. We look at our career and we realize it's not working. Oh, that means I'm a failure. We look at our kids and they're a mess and we're like, oh, that means that I'm a horrible parent. Or we look at our lives and we're like, I'm not living my purpose. And that means that I'll never be fulfilled or the world is crazy. And that means we're all doomed around us. But Jesus invites us into this elevated meaning of life this elevated perspective of the circumstances around us, and he invites us to reinterpret our world through a God-given lens of how we see things. In Hebrews chapter 12, I love this. The writer says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Here's the thing. Not in a million years would I ever associate joy with enduring a painful execution that involves suffocation and dismemberment. And yet, here, Jesus finds joy in this moment that would probably define as one of the most gruesome, dark, painful, overwhelming moments in human history. See, and it wasn't like he was like, oh, awesome, the cross, because in that moment, his perspective was elevated because he knew that as he endured this, there was gonna be an outcome on the other side that would be so profound that it allowed going through the suffering to be an experience where he could rejoice because his eyes were actually fixed on the humanity that he would redeem. That all of this suffering, that all of this pain would actually lead to, be, to the world being saved from themselves and given a pathway to connect to God once again and he was focused on you. And in that, in going through all of this suffering and all of this heartbreak and probably the worst circumstances that a human being could find themselves in, he, in that moment, chooses joy and he elevates his perspective. He, he looks at it from new lens. And here's the thing. Many other verses talk about how this moment was agonizing and painful and there was so much suffering and there was so much heartbreak and it was probably one of the worst physical experiences that a human being could go through. See, this conversation is not about denying the other experiences that you have as a human being. It's not about sticking your head in the sand and saying, la, 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 I'm not sad, or there's no hopelessness here, or I'm not angry, or whatever it means. It's about choosing the perspective that will inform your journey. Because here's what I found about joy. Joy is perfectly fine sitting on the bench right next to every single other emotion that you experience in life. Joy has no problem sitting right next to anger. It doesn't. It has no problem sitting right next to grief. It has no problem sitting right next to hopelessness or despair or resentment. It'll just sit there and say, great, 
you can keep choosing that, but I'm just gonna stay here available to you. And whenever you wanna pick me up and whenever you want to engage this conversation, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm willing for you. But here's the thing, that doesn't have to define the moment. You can notice it and experience it and have it there and be fully human with it and still choose joy in any circumstances. See, ironically, it was the cross that allowed us a space and a path to connect to an elevated conversation, to connect to an elevated perspective, to raise up what we see as possible. See, because Jesus, he was crucified and came back to life so that when we chose him, not even death itself could steal our joy. That, the, that the, like the worst possible scenario. Oftentimes when I'm coaching people, I'll be like, great, let's, work, let's play this thing out and let's go to the worst case scenario. And inevitably it ends up like dying alone in an alley somewhere. And I'm like, great, well, elevated perspective. Even death itself doesn't have a hold on you. And see, this is the beautiful thing is about death itself is not an even Emmy. And then, and then from that point, look, we're pretty much good in any circumstance that we find ourselves in. Right? We're, this, we're pretty much covered. It's like a blanket insurance call policy on our emotions, which is why we are to fix our eyes on him. That's actually the key here. If, if you want to know how we reverse engineer this thing, this is it. We fix our eyes on him. You just keep fixing your eyes. That's what we're called to in this moment. See, he lifts our perspective. He elevates what we see possible in that. And our joy is stolen every single time that we take our eyes off of him. When, when we remove our fix, we choose to fix it on other things, that is when our joy is suddenly removed from our lives. So we find ourselves with our eyes fixed on him and then a pandemic comes along and we're like, whoa, let's check that out and our joy is stolen. Where our eyes are fixed on him and then there's this crazy situation with our job and we start fixing our eyes over there and our joy is stolen. Where our eyes are fixed on him and we're filled with joy and hope and freedom and then we fix our eyes over on our kids over there that are doing screwy things and then we lose our joy. We find ourselves, our eyes fixed on him and then when we move them over to our career or to our finances or to what's not working, we suddenly lose our joy because our eyes are no longer fixed on him because when you take your eyes off of him, everything else will claw at your joy. It will, it will suppress your ability to lift yourself up to see from a new perspective. And then when we find ourselves hopeless because we took our eyes off of him, we, know our, we are no longer fixed on him, then we go back to what is comfortable and familiar. Well, I might not find joy, but at least now I'm comfortable. At least this is manageable. At least this is familiar in the middle of this. And so we find ourselves in space like self-pity and addiction and habit and breakdown and performance and striving because we don't have joy, but at least I have the comfort of what is familiar here in this moment. So here's the reverse engineering. Fix your eyes on him. It seems like such a simple thing, but this is like what he calls us into. It's that elevated perspective that he invites us into. See, because this perspective, not even death can touch you. He invites you into this like reality. He's like, you dead yet? No, rejoice. You dead? Yes, great, rejoice, because now you're in his presence, right? 
So it's like literally in any circumstance, in any situation, he can say, rejoice. And again, I'll say it again, rejoice always. Because there is no circumstance, no situation, no space. Nothing can remove you from the joy that the perspective of the Lord brings you in these moments. He says, it's already covered. You're already won. You already have the victory. So rejoice. And when sorrow and despair and hopelessness and angerness and bitterness come to you to attempt to inform you about what you should be feeling, you can say to them, look, you're welcome to sit here. You are welcome to hang out. And when they start throwing a fit and they're like, why aren't you paying attention to me? What are you doing? You can just let them know, hey, my eyes are fixed. Sorry, my eyes are fixed. I know you want me to fix my eyes over there. I know it'd be very easy to fix my eyes on all these other things that you're calling me into, but my eyes are fixed for the joy set before me. And this is the power that that Jesus invites us into to choose joy. See, those that suffered this regret, it was interesting that the, the, the hospice nurse who did this study found that there was a common characteristic of every single person that engaged this regret. And it was this, it was the fear of change. She said that every single person that engaged in this regret was afraid of the change that was being called out of them. See, because I think some of us have to ask the question, who am I if I wasn't so hopeless? And who am I and who might I be if I chose joy? Or better yet, what would I have to give up to live a life that was defined by rejoicing? Who am I if I don't have the chains of my circumstances holding me down? Who am I if I have no more excuses around me as to why I can't just say rejoice in any moment, in any circumstance, in any situation? See, because here's here's the problematic thing about Jesus is that he will constantly invite you into change. That is what he does. In fact, in Revelation 21, the end of all things, when all is said and done, when we're at the end of the story in in Revelation 21, 21, this is what he says to us. As he says, all things have passed away and the story is complete, he says, and he sat on the throne and said, behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, write these things down for these words are trustworthy and true. See, this is why joy is a command because you are never without hope. You are are never, ever without an answer. You are never without a way out. You are never without a redemption at the end of the story because here's the thing, you are connected to a God who is making all things new. Not some things, not most things, not all those things that like seem like he could do a pretty good job with them, but all things, all things are being made new. So if it's not redeemed yet, rejoice because it's going to be. That's the beautiful thing because God is coming for you and he is making all things new. And so in that we choose joy. In that we choose the elevated perspective of the cross that we might fix our eyes on him who for the joy set before him chose joy and 
now invites us to live life from an elevated perspective that all things will be made new. Let's pray. This morning, I wanna do something a little different. If, if you're here in this room just with your eyes closed and you are struggling with just an overwhelming sense of hopelessness or despair, maybe there are areas in your life where you feel like, man, I just, I feel so anxious and I feel like I'm just overwhelmed by worry and I can't, like, I cannot get to this space of joy. It feels like, it feels like it's out there an impossible reach. If that's you this morning with no eyes looking around, would you just raise your hand and say, yeah, I'm struggling with this space of joy. Awesome, all over the room. I wanna pray specifically for all of you first. If you're online, you can just receive this right now. And I'm just gonna ask that your eyes would be open and your heart would be elevated by the Spirit of God. And that in that you might be able to see a new perspective. So right now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move in the hearts of every single one of these women and men who are struggling with this, this command to rejoice, God. God, and right now I ask that you would remove every barrier between them and the joy of the Lord that you call us into. God, I ask right now that you would speak directly into those circumstances and those situations that feel so overwhelming that feel like there's no hope on the other side, that there's no possibility for redemption, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to them about the new thing that you're doing. God, about the, about the elevated new way of looking at it that you are calling them into, God. May they know today that you are making all things new, including this, and to rejoice all the way until the redemption happens. And so God, we declare joy over them today. I ask that you would give them the courage to lay down what is comfortable and what is familiar. God, give them the courage to step into the change that comes with being connected to your spirit, that they may release the old and step into the new and find the joy of you in that. And may it be their strength, God. And this morning, if you're here and you've not yet connected to Jesus, I just wanna give you an opportunity to connect to him because without him, there is really no possibility for this type of joy. You can be happy, but joy is a whole different story. It's a deep, unending well that comes from a source outside of us. And so if you've not yet connected to Jesus this morning, maybe if you're here in the room or online, I want you just to pray this prayer with me. And just say, dear Jesus, I give you my life. I know that I am broken and in need so I make you Lord. I know that you died for me and you came back to life so that I could fully live and fill me with your joy today. I thank you in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Humanity Church Podcast. We hope that this was a meaningful experience and we look forward to connecting again next week for another conversation around what it looks like to live by faith, to be known by love, and to be a voice of hope. 
Again, for more information about Humanity Church, you can visit us online at humanitychurch.com. And if you want to support the ongoing work here at Humanity Church, including this podcast, you can give online in about 10 seconds by texting the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977. Thanks and have an amazing week.